Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we look at this together. Someone is quipped that marriage uh, teaches us loyalty, self-restraint, forbearance, and a lot of other qualities we wouldn't need nearly so badly if we'd stayed single. <laughs> they can think about that a little bit. Uh, the outline of this uh, particular epistle, 1 Corinthians, seems to follow the, the uh, design laid out in first, uh, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, that says the Word of God is, is uh, profitable for four things. Uh, correction and reproof, that's what we found in the first six chapters. Say the Lord has reproved them uh, through Paul and is correcting them. And now the second half of that passage in 2 Timothy is instruction and training. And that seems to be what's taking place from chapter 7 on as Paul begins the process of instructing and teaching and training uh, these people on a number of issues. As he's doing so, he is looking at some questions. He's replying to some questions that they apparently sent to him. And it's interesting as you make observation going through this book how that uh, parses out. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, and we're going to look at those today, but he does that six different times. They've written some questions. In chapter 7, verse 25, for example, Now concerning virgins, I have no command. We're going to talk about that in the days to come, concerning single women in the church there. Chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. This is a big issue in that day, not so much now, but we'll get an application from that as well. Going over to chapter 12, we have a big one. that asks questions about spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. In chapters 12, 13, and 14 is taken up with explaining these spiritual gifts in a very important passage of scripture that we'll look at. They were asking those questions. In chapter 16, verse 1, there is yet another one. It says here, now concerning the collection for the saints. And so there's a collection being taken up at this time, and Paul wants to talk about that. And then finally, verse 12 of chapter 16 but concerning Apollos, our, our brother. Now, remember early on in chapters 1 and 2, he talked about Apollos. There was some, some division in the church over who was the better leader, Paul or Peter or Apollos. And Paul talked about that early in the book. Now he returns to it for one more comment at the end because they apparently were asking questions along that line. So as we go back to chapter 7, uh, we see this is where he's going from here on. So he's answering questions, and the uh, questions you want to look at now in chapter 7, verse 1, had to, has to do with marriage and sexuality and so forth. In chapters 5 and 6, uh, Paul's been dealing with immoral situations in the church. There was things going on there morally that fit in very well with the culture, but not well with, with the Lord. And so he's dealing with that in chapters 5 and 6. And then uh, in this chapter, uh, he moves on to talk about some of the issues, particularly obtain, obtaining to uh, that issue of morality, but especially in light of marriage. This particular chapter has been the subject of a great deal of debate, especially today, uh, with uh, movements within the Christian uh, women uh, feminism movement and so forth, evangelical feminism and so forth. This chapter has come under a lot of discussion and even attack. Uh, it can be a, a cause of division. It is definitely a cause for confusion for many. As a matter of fact, I was at a conference just a, a month or two ago, and a pastor told me of a pastor friend of his 
uh, that was going through 1 Corinthians got to chapter 7 and a third of his church left. So that's not our goal, uh, by the way. Uh, and I assume that's not going to happen here because I'm going to assume that whatever differences you might have as you go into this text of Scripture, that the Word of God shapes your thinking rather than you shaping the thinking of Scripture. That the Word of God stands over that. So as we carefully parse out and exegete this passage of Scripture, this whole chapter, in the next uh, four, four weeks, uh, I trust you will allow the Word of God to shape you and not allow the culture around you to shape you. Because that is exactly what was happening at Corinth. The culture was in charge rather than the Scriptures. As we approach this chapter, there's two things I want you to keep in mind. Number one, uh, Paul is not dealing with a full-orbed picture of marriage. He's not giving us a, a whole picture of that because that's not his issue. There's questions being sent to him, and he wants to address those. And the second thing that uh, I would mention here is that these are instructions have to do with a local problem, uh, an issue, some issues that they're facing, and we don't have their question. And so we have to read between the lines a little bit, but we're not looking here at uh, some strange issue. Some have taken this passage to say that celibacy is a higher ground than, than being married, and Paul does not teach that. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says, those who forbid marriage are part of the apostasy. Those are false teachers that forbid marriage. Paul was not into that. That's not what this chapter is about. Nor is Paul expressing uh, uh, his view or God's view uh, on marriage in totality as such. Um, some people looking at this passage and a couple others say the ap- Christians, some Christians say, I hate Paul. Matter of fact, I was re- I'm reading a book right now uh, by, written by an evangelical feminist uh, who is a, pa- a teacher at a Christian university. And in, that, in her teaching, she says, many of her students come to her and say, I hate Paul because of the teachings of this passage and others that I believe have been misunderstood and misinterpreted, and, and that's the reason they hate Paul. But how could you, can you imagine saying that, the inspired writer of Scripture, you hate him because he uh, doesn't teach what you want him to teach? Uh, so we have to look at what he's actually saying as well. If you really want to find out a, a bigger picture of marriage, what God thinks of marriage, what Paul thought about marriage, turn to passages that deal with that, such as Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, where you have a bigger picture. And there's many places peppered throughout the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, that deals with marriage. But this passage is not a theology of marriage. It's dealing with particular issues related to marriage and related to sexual issues, but it's not a full-blown picture of what marriage ought to be like. But marriage is, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and others, marriage is a union of two people who are... Uh, living in love, living in respect of one another. They're, they're committed to one another. They're partners for life, walking hand in hand through this life together. They are in a union that is blessed by God, refined by God, so much so that it is a fitting symbol of Christ's love and the relationship with His church. So if you want to see something fuller and more, uh, more of a theology of marriage, go to those passages. Most of you, when you got married, repeated the traditional marriage vows. Uh, I don't think I've ever done a wedding in which somebody got up here and had written totally out their own vows. Uh, In some ways, I'd like to see people do that. On the other way, I think it's kind of cool that most of us have stood before God and before others 
and have repeated the exact same words for, for decades now. Remember the marriage vows? It goes something like this. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. How many people have forgotten those vows and, have, and matter of fact, denied those vows and moved away from those vows? But those are the vows that we make for the most part. And so that's what marriage is, that a dedication to one another in the eyes of God to honor him, to uh, reflect his glory, to love and respect another person for a lifetime. What a beautiful thing the Lord has given us. If we study 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in light of Ephesians chapter 5 and other such passages, we see Paul's real concern. He saw at Corinth believers, Christians, who were disgracing marriage, who were, who were living immorally, who, who were getting divorced for no real good reason at all. Uh, he saw those entering into the marital bond without any understanding of what they were doing and not taking their responsibilities seriously. And as a result of that, they were living their marriages. And to get this, this is where it's going to hit the, hit the road with, with us. They were living their married lives as the culture lived married lives, not as God said you should live it. And so that's where the Word of God comes in. We, talk, we sang about that today. A couple of the songs today really fit with this, with the idea, look, our minds must be shaped not by our culture, not by what's popular at the moment, but by the Word of God itself. And that's what Paul is doing in this culture in the first century, and we will make application to our century as well. It is these errors that uh, Paul is dealing with, these misunderstandings that he wants to correct. Uh, he is not down on marriage. We'll get that right up the front. He's not down on marriage. He is down on the abuse of marriage. He is down on Christians living like the world lives in relationship to one another. He is going to correct that. He's, he's bold. He's, he's, he's going to step up. He's going to take the hits to challenge these people in the way they're living that is unbiblical. He wants to change them. There is a key, though, before we actually jump into the text. There's a key to this in the verse before chapter 7 that shapes everything. And I want you to see it. Chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, when he's talking about the body. We looked at that last week. The Christian body, how we live our lives in these bodies, these bodies that are the temples of the Holy Spirit, these bodies in which God indwells us. And he says in verse 20, for you've been bought with a price, that's the price of the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore glorify God in your body. And so the, 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 the basic direction of the Christian life, the basic goal and purpose of the Christian life is to live in such a way that we glorify God in our body. And then he immediately moves into chapter 7 and makes a, a specific application uh, in how to do that in relationship to marriage and morality and singleness. And that's where we're going to go uh, in the days ahead. Uh, we're going to look at two distinct questions in our text today. First of all, how should Christians view physical intimacy? And there is a subject that's not dealt with a lot from the pulpit, perhaps, but God deals with it, and we're going to deal with it. How should a Christian view physical intimacy? Verse 1 says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
Some at Corinth had uh, overreacted to the permissiveness of their church. We saw in chapter 5 and chapter 6 how many of them were living immorally. Uh, They had uh, bought into the cultural view of the body, that the body was a throwaway, it wasn't important, what we did with our body didn't matter. All that mattered was our inward nature, our, our soul, our spirit, whatever you want to call it. All that mattered was our heart. didn't matter what we did with our body. That was stoic philosophy of the first century. And they had bought into that idea. And so that some of them were living with their bodies immorally, even though they were Christians and apparently were Christians. They had never learned yet how uh, that we're not a dichotomy or, or a dualism that we're body and soul we can live separately we're one unit and that's what Paul's talking about here we're living our body in our, in our body to the glory of God Paul's going to agree as we'll go through this that remaining single is a good thing so I'm going to throw that out now remaining single is a good thing uh, he is going to say it's good for those who have that gift Verses 6 to 9, for all others it's not. But he's going to deal with that. And so that's where some people jump in, grab a verse out of context, and move on, and we'll see some of that as well. There's two extreme opinions on this subject of marriage. When it says not to touch a woman, that was a euphemism for sexual relationships. And so he's saying it's good not to, uh, to have sexual relationships, right? So that's where some jump in on that. And there's two different opinions. That's a question they're asking him, see? Should, should we have physical relationships? Not just in, 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 as unbelievers or immorally, but even in our marriage. That's, that's his context. And there's two different uh, groups here, two different opinions. One group reflect, we've already looked at in chapter 6. It was exclusively males. Now keep in mind the culture. He writes exclusively to men. Because in the Greek culture of that time, men were supposed to, it was just part of the culture, to uh, go out uh, of the marriage bond and be involved with temple prostitutes. It was just part of the Greek culture to be involved with uh, women on the street known as heteris, who were not uh, prostitutes, but they were not married either. They became the companions of men and often their mistresses. That was recognized as common. That's what people did. Nobody saw it as evil or wrong. But God did. And so when uh, the believers became uh, Christians, uh, they did not grasp that difference. And so they need to understand the very major difference that Paul's talking about here. For a man to commit immorality then with these women, married or not, was considered wrong. That's what God words wants to say. Some, however, again, uh, shaped by the culture. Now, I, I want to really bring this home to you. None of, us, none of us have this exact cultural issue. But we have something, we have similar things today in which our culture shapes everything about everything. And we are in constant battle, folks, always, on every issue you can touch. We're in constant battle with the world's view of everything and God's view of everything, and they seldom match. Once in a while, there's an overlap. We thank the Lord for that, but that's rare. And so Christians are a rare duck. I think that's in the Greek. Uh, We're, we're, in the King James, a a peculiar people, some more peculiar than others, as we know. 
But he, when he talks about these things, he's saying, look, we are out of step with everything in our society. We're out of step with their worldview. We're out of step with their behavior. We're out of step with their morals. We're out of step with their marital, marital relationships. We're out of step with everything. That's okay, because we're in step with God. And that is what matters. And so none of us deal with the same exact issue as they were dealing in the first century. But we have our own issues as well in this area. Look, for example, we're told in our culture that uh, having sexual relationships before marriage is just normal. It's what everybody does. We're told in the world that living together before marriage is what most people do. And statistically, that's true. Statistically, and even some who claim to be Christians, uh, live together before they get married. We're told in the world that watching pornography is just a normal part of life. And, and apparently the, the, the statistics we get on pornography uh, would bear that out because this is a multi-billion dollar industry that pretty much dominates the internet. We're told that unfaithfulness is common in almost any movie you watch or TV show or whatever uh, glorifies unfaithfulness. If you are not in love with your spouse and you fall in love with somebody else, then so be it. Go out and be with that other person. That's love, isn't it? That's, that's what the world teaches everywhere. And so not to agree with those things is to keep ourselves very much out of step. And so the Christians at Corinth, some of them, had bought into this system where they believed in permissiveness that the world taught. But there's a second group, and that's a group he's going to address here. A, a group that taught the, the total opposite. They taught total abstinence, both outside of marriage and inside of marriage. And they're asking Paul about that. This has been true of uh, many Christian movements throughout the centuries. The church fathers bought into this error that it's better to be celibate. It's better never to marry. It's better to, to not even have relationships. If you are married, uh, it's more spiritual. One of the early church fathers, Clement, said the only lawful purpose of marriage is to have children. Origen, in the third century, who's one of the major church fathers, said, but God has allowed us to marry because all are not fit for the higher, that is, the perfect pure life. And so the perfect pure life is the celibate life of the life of one who never marries. And you can see how this mark of uh, celibacy was elevated throughout church history in such a degree that uh, the Roman Catholic Church to this day sees that as a higher way of living. Their priests are celibate, their nuns are celibate. Their, their celibacy is the married Christ. And as a result of that, that's a higher, more pure way of living. And so we see that error going throughout church history. If you, uh, such opinions they lead then, as you can see what, what Origen even said, that uh, mar even marital relationships are dirty, unnecessary, unimportant, and should be shunned except for having children. That's very modern, by the way, in some Christian circles. Most uh, Christian utopian societies going all the way back to, uh, to the monasteries, to the more modern uh, utopian movements, such as the Shakers, all have some perverted form of understanding of the sexual relationship. If, there, if there's one common thread throughout all those, and I've read about on dozens of these utopian societies, every one of them have a mixed up view about the physical relationship. The Shakers didn't believe in physical relationships at all, and there's no surprise that there's none of them left. You know? <laughs> just doesn't fit well 
with the church growth. Now, the Word of God doesn't agree with this view that I've just been talking about. Uh, the Lord put the whole, a whole book in the Bible. Now, this is interesting, I find. Most of you know this by now, if you come to church here. But the, the Lord put a whole book in the Bible to, to tell us the, of the glory and the goodness of physical marital relationships. It's called the book Song of Solomon. And the interesting thing is this. Uh, if you read that literally, it's talking about Solomon's love for a young lady who he marries. And, and glorifies the physical and, and romantic relationship they had. But historically, uh, believers, Jewish or Christians, could not stand to interpret that literally. So historically, the Jews always interpreted Song of Solomon as a, a, love, a, a relationship of God's love for Israel. And the young men were not allowed to read it until they were 35 years old. Pornography of the day, I guess. Isn't that strange? And then the Christians came along, and they said the book of, of the Song of Solomon is about Christ's love for the church. It's an allegory. It's not literal. It's not true. It's an allegory. And to this day, uh, many, all, all Catholics teach that, if they know what they're t- teaching, and most Reformed people teach the very same thing. But that's not what it's about. It's God giving us a book of Scripture that tells us He puts his stamp of approval on a good, healthy, physical, marital relationship, and he wants us to live that way. How different that is than what our world teaches. And so this this physical relationship, God God is the one who created sex. God is the one who created the right relationship in marriage. But it can be used like dynamite. It can blow things up, or it can build things. It can be destructive or constructive. And unfortunately, often it's used destructively. I want to show you that. Go to Romans chapter 1. You're familiar with this. I'm not going to read it all. But Romans chapter 1 verse 24. We're watching our society right now morally unravel. You know, I don't have to tell you that. We're in free fall. Morally. And we know that. Uh, God knew that would happen and has happened throughout time. He tells us in 124 of Romans, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's because they rejected Him. He gave them over to their own impure desires, so that their bodies, going back to the body, notice how often Scripture speaks of bodies. So I hope you're getting this, as you're reading your New Testament now, in light of what we're talking about with the body, notice how often the Scriptures talk about the body and the importance of the body as Christian. No other religion does that. This is the faith of, of Christianity, the body. And so he says, so their bodies would be dishonored among them, verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them over to the degrading passions. He gave them up to it. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. You see the point? Because people rejected Christ, rejected His truth. Because of that, the Lord said, okay, you want that? Is that how you want to live? 
I'm, then I'm going to give it to you. The judgment that he speaks of here, going back to verse 18, God's wrath, is not necessarily the wrath in which God brings great destruction like a hurricane or something like that. It's the, it's the judgment of giving sinful people what they think they want. And it destroys them, ultimately. And sends them, ultimately, to hell. And so we find that, that the, as Paul writes about that in that passage, and we'll go back to our passage now, we find that the very moral fiber of the first century was corrupt, and the very moral fiber of our century is corrupt and getting worse. So what do we do about it? Well, look at verse 2. Let's press on. He's, he's going to say there's nothing impure about marriage or the marriage act, as some people have called it. Some of the Corinthians did not understand this, and they were already practicing a celibacy within marriage. And Paul says celibacy in marriage is wrong for three reasons. Number one, because of temptation. Verse two, but because of the immoralities that each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Go back to verse five. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now some might say, well, uh, we should be able to be self-controlled no matter what, right? And there's truth in that. Uh, We should never make an excuse as to why we want to sin or why we do sin. We don't have that right to do that. Nevertheless, the Lord said in his word here, look, uh, one one of the safeguards for healthy physical relationships in marriage is that, and, and keeping away from immoral situations, is a proper marital relationship physically. So stop depriving one another so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan is what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour or destroy. And so his job is to destroy. And who better to destroy than Christians? And so he goes around doing that. Now, Satan, you might not believe this, but Satan is not particularly creative. He uses the same tools over and over and over and over and over to destroy lives. And one of his most used tools is immorality. It's one of the tools that he uses over and over. Why would a, why would a man or a woman give up their career, give up their family, give up their reputation, give up everything? for a trias for somebody. But they do it all the time. It's all over everywhere. Why? Because Satan is very good at what he does. He knows how to use his tools very well. In my garage, I have a rack of tools and some other things here and there. And yet I find over and over when I go out to do something, I can't find my tools most of the time. I think my boys have stolen them. They claim not, but uh, that's, a, that's a kind of a side issue. I just thought I'd throw it out there just, just for my own sake. But I find no matter how many tools I still have left, I end up using the same three. You know, I've got about three tools I know how to use part, part of the time. And those are the ones I use over and over. Satan doesn't need new tools, folks. He's got the best already. And he just keeps on using them. And we keep falling into these things. And so he says here, that one of the safeguards, not the only one, but one of the safeguards when it comes to these things is to not let Satan have an upper hand in moral issues by having a proper relationship within the marriage. 
Celibacy in marriage is also wrong because it's uh, of the marital responsibility of verse 3 and 4. Because of marital responsibility. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is saying here, look, a husband and wife have a duty to one another. Now, what do you think of when you think of duty? You're doing something you don't want to do, right? Go to work, go to a job you don't like. Uh, fight the war you don't want to fight in. A study for a, an exam you don't want to study for. That's a duty. You do it because you have to. Paul's not using duty in that way. He's saying, look, and the word authority is important here. He's saying the rights over our body belongs to our spouse. It's not ours. We are united as one. We're in union. And he's saying here, there's a oneness here in which we do not have rights over our own self. Uh, in marriage, it's no longer mine. It's ours. And so in this relationship physically, same thing. Marriage is, could be used selfishly. Sexual relationships can be used selfishly. Are they going to be used lovingly? But they're to be centered on the loving act of unity that he gives us here. Number three, celibacy in marriage is wrong because it's robbery. Verse five, stop depriving one another except for agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. When we, re, when we do not, here was a group of people who, who were on the opposite side of the, of the permissive people and they're saying, we just won't have anything to do with sexual relationships, even in marriage. And Paul says, don't do that. Stop depriving one another except for mutual agreement for a time of prayer. And I personally have never known anybody that applied that verse of scripture. But maybe, maybe you have. But the point is this, is that this is a normal, happy, good, God-honoring relationship that the Lord wants us to have. And it's robbery not to continue in that relationship. We have to move on. Go, go down to verses 6 to 9. Here's the second corollary question that Paul's addressing. Should single believers ever marry? Should single believers marry? Now, that seems odd to us perhaps, but that's, uh, that's the issue he was dealing with with some of these people. The Greeks had a myth that when, when the people came into existence, they, they were both sex, both genders, one, one body, male and female. And then they angered the gods, and Zeus split them in two, male and female. And for the rest of time, uh, male and females have been searching to find one another. And when they do, they call it love. Now, the Greeks were wrong, because that's not what happened, as we know from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created male and female separately. Two genders, not several genders, two biological genders, and he created them in his image. That's a biblical picture. But the Greeks were right about one thing. In chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, it said it was not good for man to be alone. And for most people, it is not good to be alone. And the Greeks understood that. And that's where their myth came from. So Paul is, is saying that in this passage, his whole book, just kind of lay it out, the whole chapter, he is saying that the general rule is for people to marry. Singleness is the exception, not the rule. And yet today in our society, about 50% of all adults are not married. 
And only 25% of people come from a traditional family home. The culture's changing. The world's changing. But Paul's not commanding marriage. You, gotta have to, you have to go back to verse 32. Uh, I'm going to get on this later, but we have to look at verse 32 and see why he would even say there's some advantages to being single. Here, here's his logic, verse 32. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how you may please the Lord. The, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried, the virgin, is concerned about the things of the Lord, and she, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now he's saying here, look, if you are single, uh, you can be less concerned about your family, about your husband, about many things. And in verse 35, as a result of that, you can have undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he sees that as commendable. But we have to put it in context with verses 6 to 9. Only those who have been given the gift of singleness by God will be undistracted. If you do not have that gift, you will be distracted. And you will not be what, devoted to the Lord as Paul talks about here. So what he is saying, I think, is this. There's a special gift of celibacy. Look at verse Verse 6, but I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in that manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them to, if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So what he's saying here is this. If you have a gift from God of singleness, then great. Don't be pressured by other people who want to match you up with somebody you don't want to be matched up with. If, if you are uh, comfortable, if you are content to be single, wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, you can have an additional a, a relationship. With, you can have an additional ministry, a, a wider ministry for the Lord because you are uh, free from other obligations. And that's a good thing. But he says, only if the Lord has given you that gift to do that. And not very many people have that gift. But if you don't feel the need for marriage, and you're single, uh, and you uh, want to stay single, there's good reasons for it. But he's talking here about Christians who are now staying single so that they can be more devoted to the work of Christ. Not just to be single so they can make more money and have a big career. Single, so that they can be undistracted by many things that distract them from living for the Lord. I remember at Moody when we were there, the, the big question, everybody wanted to be dedicated to Christ, and the big question that always shook us was, what if the Lord didn't want you to get married? W would you be willing to accept that? And that set a, set a lot of young men into panic. You know, oh, what would happen? Some of them ran out and married the first girl that lay still, well, hold still, grabbed her and said, hey, you want to get married? Sure. And then uh, two, year, two years later, they wish they hadn't done that. But um, nevertheless, if God wants you to serve him as a lifetime single, then he'll give you that gift. If he doesn't want you to, if you want to be married, if you have that desire to be married, 
It's a good thing. And, uh, and if that's from God, then you will ultimately be married in God's timing, maybe not yours, but when God wants you to. But if you don't have that desire, you don't have to. Isn't that strange teaching from up here? You don't have to be married. I think marriage is the norm, but it isn't something that everybody should do. So if you reach the age, the ripe old age of 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever, and you're not married, that isn't a wrong thing. It may be the thing God wants you to do. You need to work with God on that and determine what is best for your life. Most people believe Paul was married at one time because the Jews are usually married, young men married by the age of 20, sometimes as early as 14. And young girls almost always married by 14 or 15. It was just the, the norm of the culture. Uh, Paul, many believe, was a member of the Sanhedrin. There's some evidence of that. And the Sanhedrin required marriage. So there was a time that Paul was probably married. His wife, had, most believed, had probably died. And as a result of that, uh, he is now single. And he never desired to be married again. There are probably some people in the different churches trying to match Paul up. Can you imagine that? He was traveling around from Corinth to Philippi. And here, were, here was a group of ladies in the corner. Have I got a girl for you? You know? Nobody would ever do that here. But some churches might. And you know what? Paul said, no, thank you. I'm not against marriage. Marriage is a wonderful thing. God honors marriage. God says there are a lot of wonderful things about marriage. But I can do more for Christ single. And that's the direction he went. We have no hint that he ever had another concern in that regard. We also should keep in mind one kind of side issue is that as a church, if 50% of adults today are single, then the church has to be involved with working with single people, ministering to single people, because that's where a lot of our world is today. It's not, they're not all from a family. Many of them, the church is their family. And that's great. Matter of fact, for us who are, who are married and have families, the church becomes our family too, or it should be. That's what it should happen. But the key, going back once again to chapter 6, verse 20, because I don't want to just talk about the practical aspect. The key all flows from chapter 6, verse 20. Therefore glorify God in your body. Whatever you do, whether you work or eat or drink or or this or that or the other, get married, don't get married. Whatever you do, Paul is saying, you glorify God with your body and in your body. That's the key uh, ambition of the child of God, to glorify God with their body. And so contrary to some interpretations throughout church history, Paul is not arguing for celibacy or singleness. He is saying those who are gifted, so be it, and stay in that state and serve Christ for the rest of us, it is probably not good for most of us to be alone, according to Genesis chapter 2. Rocky Balboa. In Rocky 1, gave us a wonderful reason to get married for most of us. It's not good to be alone. Remember Rocky? How could you forget Rocky? He fell in love with a girl named Adrian. Adrian was shy and backwards and not particularly cute. And her brother, Polly, said, what in the world do you see in my sister? Uh, why are you attracted to Adrian? And Rocky said, well, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm awful at imitating him. I'm going to try it. I don't know. Fills gaps, I guess. She's got gaps. I've got gaps. Together we fill gaps. I kind of like that. 
Not the way I said it, but I kind of like that. <laughs> there are gaps in the lives of most of us that God has designed that our marriages and our families fill. We could stay single, and some should. Others need to have the gaps filled by the individuals that God puts into our lives in our marriages, in our children, and we're happy for those gaps, aren't we? We're happy how the Lord fills them, but not everybody has the same gaps. That's his, Paul's argument. He's not arguing for or against marriage or singleness. He's arguing that you serve Christ with your body. You glorify God with your body, whether married or single. That's our ambition. That's our goal. It's a far bigger goal than marriage itself. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a passage of scripture that uh, is difficult. We, we would admit that. It's not an easy one that we could just flow through. And, and, uh, and yet as we look at your word systematically, we come to a passage like this and we know there are things we need to do and understand and live out. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have so created us that we need one another, that uh, you so created most of us that you'll provide a, a loving marital relationship for us. Others, Lord, you've, you've so gifted them that they can live without someone in their life in that way and serve you with, with uh, joy. And, Lord, I pray that as we look through this chapter together that we'll work, work through those issues and we'll be convinced of what you would have for each of us in that regard. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.